Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We're going to dive right into Revelation. Uh, Throughout the series, it's a little bit of a challenge. Uh, We're kind of taking it a clip at two chapters a week, basically. And sometimes it's a little bit challenging to deal with both the trees as well as the forest. Uh, There are a lot of trees in details with every little thing that's mentioned, tons of Old Testament references. Same time, it's easy to get lost in that and lose the perspective of the forest. So we'll try to do that and keep that semi-bounce. But here we go. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, we've been trying to keep this as the tone for our series. Uh, John says, this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Often, and I've heard this from a number of people here at Southridge, sometimes when the book of Revelation is taught, it can almost be taught with a sense of, of anger, Sometimes it's traumatizing, fear-inducing. Whereas John actually specifically says that his desire, the desire of Jesus, is that that we would actually be blessed by hearing it. There should be a sense of quiet confidence, humble courage, joyful certainty, calm peacefulness, and steadfast trust in God that comes from studying Revelation. And so that's our prayer. We've also said that Revelation certainly does involve judgment. There's numerous instances of God's judgment coming upon the earth. And so before we dive into Revelation 10 and 11, which will be our focus for this morning, just want to talk a little bit about God's judgment. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, here's what Paul says. I'll just read the first part of this verse. He says, the wrath of God, he doesn't say will be revealed, He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. In other words, Paul says that God's wrath and his judgment flowing from that wrath is presently being revealed in our world. It's not just reserved for some point in the future. It's actually presently being revealed in the world in which we live. Now, sometimes... Churches or pastors or whatever can get a little bit amped up on that and start picking at events like earthquakes or the twin towers falling and point specifically to those things and say, like, there's the judgment of God on these particular people. It's not our responsibility to do that. In fact, when you look at God's judgment, often the way that it works in our day is that it's often simply the natural outworking of the way that God has hardwired his world to operate. Here's what I mean by that. Our world and our people are separated from God. As a result of that, we face the consequences, the devastation of that separation. Might help you to think about that in kind of physical terms. If you pour cooking oil in your engine instead of motor oil, You're going to be judged for that. Nobody's going to come and say, you're judged. You're simply going to be judged because your car won't work. If you put water in your gas tank instead of gasoline, you're going to be judged for that. Not because somebody pulls a lever and says judgment, but because you've separated your car from the design of it burning gasoline. You've separated it from its design. Therefore, it's naturally judged. If you don't maintain your car and it loses its brakes, you're going to be judged for that if you run off the road. If you go outside and it's zero degrees without a coat, you're going to be judged for that. Not because anybody pulls a lever and judges you, but because you're simply violating the world, is how your body is designed to interrelate with creation. If you eat... Too much fatty and processed foods and have high sugar diet, you're going to be judged for that. If you root for the chiefs, you'll be judged. <laughs> God's judgment isn't necessarily pulling levers and pointing a finger and saying, I'm going to judge that. 
God's judgment and his wrath being poured out is often simply our experience of the natural consequences of the way he has hardwired our world spiritually and it becomes broken. And so, yes, like things like cancer and COVID, they're the direct result of a world that's separated from God. But followers of Jesus experience both of them. Things like cavities and toothaches, blindness and lameness, diabetes, and you can, the list goes on. Those are natural consequences of how God has hardwired the universe because we're separated from him spiritually. Those are ways in which his wrath is poured out and we experience the sense that we're separated from him. Throughout a series we've been looking at, there's kind of three main things in Revelation. There's seals, there's trumpets, And there's bowls. Each of them has specific judgments that come in our world. We say that rather than happening sequentially, it actually seems that both, all of them are kind of different camera angles looking at the same thing. Looking at ways in which God's wrath is poured out, often in natural catastrophes. Sometimes it could certainly be supernatural. But there are different camera angles looking at the same season of time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, during which the world is falling under God's wrath for us being separated from him. Also, what we find in each one of them is that you have some sort of sense of of final judgment as well as a second coming. You have that with the seals. You have that with the trumpets. You have that with the bowls. With the seals, you also have an interlude in which we're reminded that God's people, that yes, even though they experience the tragedy and difficult circumstances of planet Earth, they're sealed. They belong to God. They may be physically impacted by everything that happens, but they're spiritually secure because they're sealed and they belong to God. Revelation 10 and following is another interlude, just like we saw in the seals, another interlude that talks about sort of the time frame as God's wrath is being poured out in the area of the trumpets. And so that brings us to Revelation chapter 10. And ask Amy to come up, and she's going to read Revelation chapter 10 for us. And again, we're going to try to work through this as best as we can, kind of balancing forest and trees. Uh, but here we go, and she's going to read Revelation 10. All right, Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. 
Here, by the way, these are actually some of the more challenging chapters in Revelation, as if they haven't been challenging to this point. Uh, these are challenging. There's lots of interpretations, as we've said early on. These are things we hold loosely. I'll give you some perspective that I personally would have. But again, there's lots of room for differences and variations of perspective. So these are things we hold loosely. So we'll kind of dive in. Uh, verse 1, then I saw another mighty angel. Some people would say it's actually maybe Christ. My sense is probably it's simply an angelic figure that is highly majestic and sort of certainly represents the truth of God. Coming down from heaven, he was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. We'll just underline some of these phrases and verses to kind of highlight what we're going to talk about. Again, every description seems to focus on the fact that this is a majestic, powerful kind of being. Uh, Legs lift fiery pillars remind you of the pillar of fire that led the people out of Egypt into the promised land. The nation of Israel led them. Face was like the sun. That certainly is reminiscent of characteristics and descriptions of Jesus. Rainbow above his head. Again, the idea of faithfulness, all these qualities certainly demonstrating this is an incredibly powerful person. Whether it's Jesus himself or a a high-ranking angel, not quite sure, but certainly representing the authority of heaven. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. Just a couple things with that. Uh, He was holding a little scroll. This is verse 2. Notice it's this little scroll. We're not quite sure why it's little. Most likely because it wants to set up a contrast between the fact that the figure is what's powerful. The scroll is simply the outworking of God's plan. Which lay open in his hand. Remember back in earlier in Revelation, we saw the scroll was not opened. Uh, This seems to highlight the fact that God's plan is, in fact, unfolding. It's open. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What's happening there seems to be a demonstration that this figure plants one foot on land, one foot on sea, demonstrating the fact that he has absolute, complete, 100% authority over both. There's nothing he has no authority over. Let me just take a little aside to that. I don't know what's happening in your life now. I don't know what's in your past that maybe drives you nuts and haunts you to this day. I don't know what's in your future and you're uncertain of and is sort of unknown or perhaps fearful. But what I can say is this, friends. God has his foot planted in both your past and in your future. Whatever is happening in your life, things that you regret, God's foot is planted there. Things that you might be fearful of or look forward to, God's foot is planted there. There is no territory in your life where the foot of God is not planted with his rule and his authority. And however your life unfolds with the kind of circumstances that it might bring, the more powerful thing is this. The circumstances in your life are small compared to the person who holds your life. Whatever is happening in your life, yes, it's important. Yes, you feel the impact of it. But more important than what's happening in your life is the person who holds the script of your life. And the God of heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus, holds the script of your life. Your script might be hard. It might be challenging. But the God of heaven holds the scroll. The God of heaven holds the script. Whatever is in your life is held in the hand of God. In verses 3 and 4, it talks about seven thunders. It says John is not to record that. We're not quite sure what's happening there. Could be somewhere along the lines of these might be additional judgments that God is actually withholding in his mercy. And so they're not unfolded. Not quite sure how that all works. Verse 6, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Remember, this is all-encompassing. Who created heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the seas and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. Again, this figure holds absolutely 100% everything in his hand. Could again be the person of Christ himself. 
There's nothing that's removed from his power, his sovereignty, his control. He's Lord over all. And then it concludes that there will be no more delay. Kind of the sense there is this, that God's plan of redemption has been unfolding. It's been unfolding for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus came, he walked our earth, he was crucified, buried in a tomb, raised to life, ascended to heaven. And the next thing that's going to happen is he will come again. And so there's no more delay in the sense that this is the next thing. There's no more pieces to put in place other than the return of Jesus himself. Verse 7, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Just dive into that little phrase, the mystery of God will be accomplished. What does that mean? Throughout Scripture, one of the things that you find is that the working of God's plan of redemption, the working of his plan of salvation and restoration is somewhat mysterious. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 15, we're given the promise. This serpent, this Satan figure who deceived Adam and Eve, that serpent, that Satan is going to be crushed. His head is going to be destroyed. In Genesis chapter 12, we find a promise to Abraham. Abraham, through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, I'm going to bless every tribe, nation, and language. That's the promise given to Abraham. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Later on in Revelation chapter 11, we find the words that we talked about early this morning as we opened the service. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Here's the deal with this, friends. We know how part of the mystery has been resolved. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a tabernacle that represents the presence of God. There's a temple that represents the presence of God. There's sacrifices of animals that are made, and the result of those sacrifices, sins are covered over. But they don't really solve the problem, and so we're left with the mystery at the end of the Old Testament. How is this problem going to be solved? Certainly just killing an animal can't get us right with God. Certainly we desire more of God's presence than just a tent. And so the mystery of that becomes resolved in the person of Jesus who actually steps on earth as the person of God himself gives his life on the cross and he takes away our sin. He removes the separation. The mystery of God, the mystery of the gospel is finally resolved in the person of Jesus. Ah, now we understand. Here's how we can be right with God. Who would have figured that out? It's the person of Jesus giving his life For the final covering of sin. But now we're still left with the mystery. Anybody kind of living in mystery these days? Any of you have sort of like dots in your life, circumstances in your life that you say, how can this possibly bring honor and glory to God? We're left with the mystery of an earthquake when 28,000 people die. We say, how in the world can there be a good God in heaven? And for something like that, that's a mystery, friends. And so we're still waiting for that mystery to be resolved. This mystery has been resolved. We see Jesus. He's the one who removed the separation. But we still are left with the mystery of how is this going to be carried out so that all things in heaven and earth belong to God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It actually... A couple of phrases earlier, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That's mystery number one. That's resolved. The person of Jesus does that. Here's what it says. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this mystery of how it can be reconciled to God to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So there's something still mysterious that's future to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Acts chapter 3, verse 21, heaven must receive him. That's the ascension of Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets. That's a mystery to us. How is God going to restore all things? 
How is going, he's going to bring, how is he going to bring unity, all things in heaven and on earth? How is that going to happen? Revelation is the unfolding of that part of the mystery. Part of the mystery that we're going to see in Revelation 11 is that God is actually at work through suffering. That's part of the mystery that we cannot fully see at this point, but that will be explained to us and we'll see more clearly in the future. Tim Chester says this, the persecution of the church, we're going to find that in Revelation 11, is the secret weapon by which God intends to use in his victory over the church's persecutors and to achieve his purposes of redemption. That part of this mystery is that through the suffering of God's people, as they endure the difficulty and tragedies and hardship of what happens in Revelation, that God's going to work through that mystery to actually bring about his conquering. That what seems like defeat among followers of Jesus is actually going to lead to the all-conquering Christ. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, I take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. Not quite sure all that entails. Probably one possible idea is this, that the gospel has sweetness to it. It brings reconciliation between us and our creator. It brings God's grace and truth, his forgiveness, his mercy. It brings unity with Christ. It brings connection with God as, their, as his sons and daughters. That's sweetness in our mouth. Yet there's also a very real component as we read Revelation that it brings hardship. It brings bitterness to your stomach. In Revelation chapter 11, we're going to look at witnesses being killed. Revelation is full of people suffering. In John's day, people were losing their lives to the Roman government. Their lives were being taken and so it was, yes, it was sweet, and yet it's, it's difficult, it's hard. Could also be a reference to the fact that it's, it's sweet for those who embrace Jesus, but yet also bring judgment and condemnation to those who don't. Verse 10, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It twice tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I heard it, my stomach turned sour. Listen, friends, yes. God is a God of mercy and grace and love and kindness. But he's also a God who brings into account that which is evil. In fact, his judgment is actually part of his love. His judgment is an expression of his love. But it's also a difficult and hard part of his love. And ask Amy to come up again. And she's going to read uh, Revelation chapter 11. And uh, as she reads that again, this is part of the interlude that begins in Revelation chapter 10 and seems to be sort of a, a perspective of the life of Jesus' followers as his witnesses in the present time since Jesus' ascension all the way through to his second coming. So, Amy, please read Revelation 11. Revelation chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, 
Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth." Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Thank you, Amy. Again, getting easier, isn't it? It's great. Um, There's literally dozens and dozens of trees that I'd love to get into. We'll touch on a couple things. Uh, We're, again, covering this on Wednesday evening and this our midweek. If you're interested in that, we've got resources online as well. Uh, But there's literally dozens of trees that are just fascinating. I'd love to dive into them. So we'll try to bounce again, forest and trees. Uh, There's also a lot of different interpretations and perspective on this passage. I certainly value all of them. It's something that we hold very loosely. Uh, But all I can do is sort of give my best sense of what after reading, I think is happening, uh, but do that again, very held very loosely. Verse one, I was given a, a read like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. Seems to be very kind of analogous or parallel to the ceiling of the 144,000 back in Revelation chapter seven. Now, the ceiling was, these are God's people that yes, they may not be physically protected from the calamities that happen in the seals, trumpets, and bowls. They will be spiritually protected. They are mine. So the measuring seems to be similar to that, that these are the people who absolutely belong to Christ, and there's nothing that can separate them uh, from his ownership of them as his sons and daughters. Verse 2, but exclude the outer courts. Interesting because... The outer courts was the place of the Gentiles. Uh, through Christ, both Jews and Gentiles are united together in Christ. And there's so, so there's no longer anyone in the outer courts. Jews and Gentiles now together belong to Christ. Because it's been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Uh, seems to refer to the just antagonistic response of the world and of the surrounding governmental powers against the people who are followers of Jesus. Uh, we mentioned a number of weeks ago, it's the vast number of followers of Jesus that are presently being trampled in our world. Seems to be an indication and expression of that. It says they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Again, lots of perspectives, really challenging. Uh, We'll dive probably into some of these time frames later on, but just maybe a couple of ideas. Uh, Throughout Revelation, the idea of 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days are all very frequently mentioned. Uh, They seem to be maybe taking the same thing and looking at it from different angles. Uh, Probably initially, I would say the three and a half is half of seven And so at least from my perspective, it's a time period of incompletion. It's a time that's temporary. Uh, Seven years would represent fullness of time. So three and a half is only half of that. Let me just take a moment and mention this. Actually, let me just mention that in a bit. Um, 
probably hearkening back to the book of Daniel, where in Daniel, Daniel said that the Jews would be persecuted by the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. It was an intense period of suffering through which God's people emerged victorious in the Old Testament. And so John looks back to that period of time of a literal three and a half years to portray this time of the, the time, the interlude between the ascension and the second coming to picture a time of persecution and hardship. John may also be alluding to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 that happened over the course of 42 months where Jerusalem was literally trampled. And so again, he's using that time of intense difficulty, challenge, tribulation to picture the season of time for those who are followers of Jesus between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. We know that in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel left Egypt, they had an initial journey in the wilderness for two years. That was followed up by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they came to the promised land. So it was a season of 42 years there. Could be a connection to the 42. We know that Elijah in Luke chapter 4, verse 25, he prayed that it would not rain on the earth for a season of three and a half years. Again, a season during which God's judgment would come on the nation of Israel, so rain was withheld. Interestingly enough, we also told in 1 Kings 19 that there were still 7,000 who had not bowed the knee even during that three and a half year period. So again, what Revelation 11 seems to be doing is celebrating and ensuring the security of those who are faithful to God during this interluding time of difficulty, hardship, challenge, and tribulation. Let me just kind of take an aside for a second. Wherever you are in your life right now, it's a point of time. Whatever's happened in your life up to this point, it's a point in time. At this moment, the season of of life that you've lived on this earth, whether that's five years or 90 years, it's a dot compared to the completion of God's story for you. Here's the tendency every one of us have. Everyone has a, every one of us has a tendency to critique God and to critique his plan based on three and a half years. We have a tendency to critique how he's working in our lives, what, in, what he's doing in this world in a very incomplete season of time of three and a half years. Listen, friends, the dot that your life is in right now is not the full story. This moment of time is not the full story. Your story, if you're united to Christ in faith, will continue forever and ever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth in the presence of God. That's the full story. That's the seven years. That's the completion. For right now, whatever's in your story, it's a blip on the screen. It's a dot. It's minuscule. Don't critique God and don't evaluate him by the dot of three and a half years when the full story is the full story of seven years of completion. Trust him. Walk with him. Verses three and four and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, that's the same period of time. It's three and a half years, one, uh, 42 months. Clothed in sackcloth, they are two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Um, two witnesses, most likely. Um, again, there's different perspectives of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 in the Old Testament, we find that for, a, for testimony to be corroborated, for it to be legitimate, there had to be two witnesses. Verse Deuteronomy 19, 15, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established 
by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so this, to me, looks like the completeness of the church's witness for Christ. That God sends judgments on earth or an outpouring of his wrath. But just like the heart of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened, even though God's judgment and his wrath pours out. But it's the faithful witness of the church, a witness to Jesus' death, burial, the resurrection, the witness to the gospel that actually is corroborates and affirms God's unique plan. Verse, Luke chapter 28, verse 48. Right before Jesus ascends, here's what he says. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he says this, you are witnesses of these things. Remember the closing words of Revelation 10? John's instructed, hey, your prophecy needs to go to all nations, languages, and people. You got to keep on doing this. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus looks at his followers and says, you are witnesses of these things. And so I would see these two witnesses as sort of representing the faithful witness of Jesus' church from the time of his ascension all the way to the time of his second coming. Uh, we could get into the fact that there are also references to uh, lampstands as well as to olive trees. Olive, olive oil throughout Scripture is symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so olive trees were literally produced olive oil that, were then the, that was then the fuel that fueled the lampstands. And so, so it seems to be happening is that the churches, Jesus' people, his followers are the lampstands. It's already been demonstrated earlier in Revelation. But that the power of the Holy Spirit fuels the witnesses of Jesus' church to be a witness to his death, burial, his resurrection, the truth of the gospel. Seems to be most likely what's happening. Again, lots of room for various interpretations on that. Verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Seems like a reference possibly, again, to Elijah that was already referenced earlier with the three and a half years of, of drought. Uh, Elijah certainly called fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel. If you remember when we looked at the life of Elijah a number of months ago, he also called fire down on people who were antagonistic to God who were on top of a mountain, just symbolizing his judgment. They have power to shut up the heavens again so that it would not rain. Again, kind of reminiscent of the work of Elijah in verse 6. Now, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. If you could jump to verse 6, that'd be awesome. Um, during the time they are prophesying and they have power to turn the waters into blood, Maybe I don't have that verse. And to strike the earth with every kind of pause, plague as often as they want. Again, sort of a picture of the plagues that God sent on Pharaoh to bring judgment during that season of time. Verse 7 to 10 kind of goes into a little bit more detail as to how those witnesses are treated. Verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. It's clearly a sense that later on we'll find that the beast is sort of an expression of the powers of the earth. It's empowered by the abyss, the place of darkness that we looked at last week or two weeks ago will attack them and overpower and kill them. Verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had been tormented, those who live on the earth. There's a sense that if we are witnesses to Jesus' name, that they will not necessarily be received well. Some of you have felt that in this room. If an off-color joke is told in the office, you step out of the office 
You kind of remove yourself, and maybe you never say a word of critique, but you'll probably be labeled a holy roller simply because you don't participate in off-color jokes. Maybe the group goes out to a place after work that's morally questionable. Maybe you have a conviction that it's not a place that you feel like builds you up and strengthens your relationship with God. So you, you, you choose not to go, to, to not participate. You may not offer a word of judgment on any person, and yet there'll be a sense of, well, you're the holy roller. What makes you better than us? And so there is a sense in which if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, you'll be critiqued. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Again, lots of different perspectives on this. Some would say that that might be some kind of literal resurrection. I would tend to think that's more based on the passage in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel is talking about the kind of the, the dead state of the people of Israel. And here's what he says. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. Remember, this is the words of, of uh, Ezekiel to the dry bones, the, the bones that are lifeless. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. So again, sort of the sense seems to be that no matter what the world does, no matter what forces are antagonistic to the people of God, the people of God will still thrive. God's purposes, his mission will still be advanced. The mystery is that even through death, Jesus conquers. In fact, a lot of this language and these verses are reminiscent of the story of Jesus himself being raised from the dead. And as followers of Jesus, we are literally called to lose our lives, to deny ourselves, rather than clench onto our lives, to lose our lives. Because that's how the power of God is seen in our lives and seen in our world. As even though it may seem like followers of Jesus are conquered, it's the very conquering that brings the victory of Jesus. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Again, that whole idea of olive trees and lampstands, that's found in Zechariah as well. Just take a couple moments to conclude. In Revelation 11, John is giving this because he desires for followers of Jesus to be faithful witnesses. And so the question for us to wrestle with is, are you a faithful witness? Am I a faithful witness? Are you a faithful witness in your home? Are you a faithful witness in your relationships? Are you a faithful witness at work? Are you a faithful witness to the person of Jesus? Are you a faithful witness by what your eyes enjoy seeing? Are you a faithful witness by what thoughts go through your head? Are you a faithful witness by what kind of media input that you take in? Are you a faithful witness? Kind of hear me out on this. It's something that I wrestled a lot with, the, that I wrestled a lot with this week. Sometimes I wonder if we disregard paying, paying the small daily costs of being a follower of Jesus because we're so focused on whether or not we would pay the ultimate cost that is not immediately in front of us. Here's how my brain operates. I often think about, man, like what would I do if I lived in a country and if I claimed the name of Christ... I might go to a prison camp. I might go into forced labor. I might be beaten. I might be tortured. And I kind of think about that. How would I handle that? What would I do? 
And yet sometimes my focus on that keeps me from failing to see how God does want me to be faithful where he has placed me. I'm often so obsessed about would I be faithful where he hasn't placed me that I actually forget to be faithful where he has placed me. He hasn't placed you in an environment where you might go to prison camp. He hasn't placed you in a place where you might be tortured or beaten. But he's placed you in an environment where you have above average resources, above average relationships, above average connections, above average opportunities. Are you faithful with where he has placed you? Today already, we've had dozens of volunteers who have been faithful witnesses to Jesus on a student retreat over a weekend, in SR Kids Ministries here on campus, leading us in worship, helping out our SR students. They've been faithful witnesses. We have faithful witnesses who give financially so that others can be faithful witnesses in Turkey and Syria. We have faithful witnesses who make decisions and extend ministry's team about where funds go. We have faithful witnesses who lead groups. We have faithful witnesses who work in homes or involved in communities, coach sport teams, all in order to be faithful witnesses to the person of Jesus. So the question is this. Don't worry so much about whether or not you would be a faithful witness in some sort of hypothetical scenario. Are you a faithful witness in your real life scenario? Does your checkbook say that you are a faithful witness? Does your computer logins say that you're a faithful witness? Does your time management say that you're a faithful witness? Do the words that come out of your mouth show that you're a faithful witness? Is what's posted on social media through your fingers, does it say you're a faithful witness? Be a faithful witness where he has placed you. And ask our team to come up, and we're a few minutes late, but we're going to sing the song, How Great Is Our God. As they come up, let me just read part of a verse from Revelation chapter 11. Uh, verses 15 through 19 are incredibly beautiful. They're not overly complex, so I'm not going to dive into them. You can read them this afternoon. But here's what it says in Revelation chapter 15, verse 17. It says this. Pay attention here. It says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. What would you expect to find next? Yeah, I would think it would be who is to come, right? That's missing. It's not there. Why is it? Well, it's because Revelation eleven fifteen through 19 is about Jesus actually coming. And so it's no longer we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come. Is to come is not there. It simply stops at the one who is and who was. Because in 15 to 19, he's come. He brings his kingdom to earth. And as we read earlier in the service, as he comes to earth, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. What an unfathomable mystery of God. Let's stand and sing how great is our God. He's unfolding his mystery of redemption. He's unfolding the mystery of all things being restored. He's unfolding the mystery of the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our God. How great is our God? May we be his faithful witnesses. Rejoice, he wraps 
to be your lampstands, your faithful witnesses in this world. May we be faithful to you, not in what you're not calling us to do, but in what you are calling us to do. Empower us by your spirit to do that. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen. Or two, we be down here to the left, my, the right. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. God bless. May we be faithful witnesses this week by the power of God's spirit.